Good morning, my name's Taylor. Would you join me as we pray? Father, we come this morning with fear and sin and frustration and anxiety. And yet we come confidently again, pleading your all-sufficient merit as the one who alone is worthy of our praise, the one who alone is worthy of our ultimate trust. And so would you rule in our hearts alone this morning and this season in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Christmas is approaching. If you are just now realizing that, then shame on you. But uh, just as Chuck read a few moments ago, we are now in a season called Advent. And Advent is just a fancy word that means arrival. And the reason that Advent is on the church calendar, because it's just an arrival, is that it is our anticipation, it is a season of anticipating the arrival of Jesus at Christmas. And throughout all of the scriptures, God's people have been awaiting, anticipating the arrival of Jesus, who would save them from their sins and reconcile them to God. And so this season of Advent that we are in is intended for our hearts to be locked in, holding on to Jesus as we hold him forth as the long-awaited Savior and King. Now, leading up to this season, we've been promoting the Advent blocks and the book for your use at home because if you're doing things, if things are going according to plan, you probably have a tree in your house now. And you probably have permission to listen to Christmas music now. And you probably have permission to eat Christmas treats now and if you're really lucky there might even be a present under the tree already with your name on it and already your anticipation for Christmas is growing and yet with the exception of like I think two of us this isn't our first rodeo and every year we know that the Christmas decorations will come down. And every year we know that the presents will get unwrapped and then many of them will get returned or broken. And then we're back into normal life. Christmas is over and there's now nothing to mask our frustration or our disappointment. There's nothing to mask the loss or the pain or the work or the worry that we feel for the other 11 months of the year. And so we need, and we know this, deep down we need Christmas to be more for us than just a season of gifts and a season of cheer. We need something, something that will actually change our lives and give us hope. Now the Advent blocks in this corresponding Advent mini-sermon series are intended to do that, to aim our affections at Jesus, the one who promises to change your life and give you hope. And I'll admit that the readings um, and the upcoming sermon series would not really be the way to do that if it wasn't true that all of the scriptures are telling the story of Jesus. And since they do, we can now join in and share in the anticipation that Abraham and Sarah once had that David and Bathsheba once had, that Elizabeth and Zechariah and Mary and Joseph all shared. 
And so may these next few weeks of Advent stir within you a deep appreciation and affection for Jesus and heighten your anticipation of his second Advent when he returns again. So this morning, would you turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 12 as we consider the story of Abraham and Sarah and join them in faith that even though it feels like God is slow or distant, he is in fact patiently present. And what I want to do for you this morning is really rehearse for you their story. So we're going to move fast and cover a lot of ground. And I want to highlight along the way the patient presence of God and their example of faith in the waiting. So would you join me here? Um, because when God makes a promise, Abraham and Sarah take action. And we are going to jump right into the action in Genesis chapter 12. Okay, at the end, I need, to, I need to do a little setup before we jump into the action. At the end of Genesis 11, we're introduced to a man named Abram. And Abram was not a pastor's kid. Abram was a pagan's kid. His father's name was Terah, and he was famous for his idol worship. And in Genesis 12, God shows up and speaks to that Abram. Okay? Abram, the at least second generation idol worshiper. And look what he says in chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So my first question is, is God far off from this pagan family? No. He draws near, setting his affection and attention on Abram. And you need to, at the very start of it, admit how astonishing that is. That God would speak to a human at all and that God would speak then to this human. He's present from the very start and he speaks to Abram making a threefold promise. You'll have land, so leave your home and go where I show you. You'll have offspring, you'll have a ton of kids and you'll be a blessing. Every corner of the earth will receive my blessing through you. And if you're Abram, what do you do with that? Okay, what do you do? You start to maybe calculate and you think, okay, I live with my parents. I'm not going to get a land anytime soon. I was hoping for an apartment. You start to think, I'm married, okay, to a barren woman. In chapter 11, verse 30, we're introduced to the, his barren wife, Sarai. And you're told that your family will become a great nation. That is even more far-fetched than moving out. And then you worship every God except for Yahweh, and yet somehow not only will you inherit Yahweh's blessing, but will participate in his blessing to the nations, even a fatter chance. And when God makes a promise, you could very well reject it. But in this case, and in this case, it certainly isn't believable. But what, what do Abram and Sarai do? Look with me at verse 4. It says, Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot, who is his brother's son, went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And it goes on to really highlight some of the folly of their decision. 
They go out into the Negev, it says, which if you're familiar with your geography, that's a desert. And it says that they went out during a famine. Good idea or bad idea to wander in the desert in a famine? It's a terrible idea. But we'll find out in a few moments that God meets them again. Would you turn over with me? Okay, so some things happen in this journey. Turn over with me, though, to Genesis chapter 15. In the next movement of the story, we see that that when God makes a promise, Abram and Sarah trust him, but take things into their own hands. Follow along as I read the first six verses of chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So once again, God is not far off, though they are now wandering in the desert. No, no, no. God is drawing near, and he meets Abram this time in a vision, and he says the words, fear not. And aside from the fact that he is the all-powerful creator speaking to a mortal, why would Abram have been afraid? We'll glance down at chapter 16, verse 3 for a moment. Ten years have passed. Ten years have passed since Abram came to the land where God led him. Ten childless years. Ten years of monthly disappointment. Ten years of silence. Ten years of feeling forgotten. Ten years since the last sparkle of hope. And when God comes, Abram expresses his frustration with God's timing. What will you give me? I continue childless. And the heir of my house is a distant relative. In other words, this isn't how things should be going. And God takes him outside and says, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able. And I've always imagined, perhaps you're imagining it now, a night sky full of the, you can see the Milky Way, you know, stretching across the sky. But if you read further in verse 12, it says, which is later, as the sun was going down, in verse 17, when the sun had gone down, God took Abram out in broad daylight. He said, look up and count the stars if you're able. Count those stars that you can't even see, but that you know are there. Consider that for a minute. He could not count them because the time was not right to see the stars, and neither was the time right to experience this promise fulfilled. But even in the day, the stars are still there. And then, of course, in that, as the sun went down in that star-studded Canaan sky, later that night, Abram would realize that even when he could see them, he still could not count them. 
And to believe God in this is the definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The stars are there, whether or not you can see them. And verse 6 there in chapter 15 sums up really this, this groundbreaking reality that the byproduct of Abram's faith is that God counts it to him as righteousness. This moment is, you could say, Abram's story of his conversion. This is the moment when Abram is not at odds with his creator, but is declared to be right before him. And the only cause is faith. Which means that to be declared right before the creator is a gift. It's not a thing to be earned by performance, but by simple faith, which means as a gift it cannot be revoked either. Because just as the gift was given for faith, the gift remains even when the story turns and Abram and Sarah take things into their own hands. Look at what happens in the next chapter, chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Okay, good or bad? Good plan, bad plan. Bad plan. Abram and Sarai believe the promise of God and then manipulate their own version of fulfillment and it produces for them all kinds of unimaginable trouble. This is not his intention for Abram and Sarai. This is not the miracle of long-awaited fulfillment. This is a short sell on what God intended to do. And you'd probably be right to think that God would bow out and end scene and disappear. But he doesn't. In fact, if you continue reading, the next thing that you see God do in chapter 16 is meet Hagar in the wilderness as she flees the harsh and vindictive Sarai. And she says in her flight, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly I have seen him who looks after me. Now, I have to mention those words because Abram might be a really important person, right? You might have heard of him, you might know his story, and the whole world might remember Abram. Hagar, his now pregnant slave girl, not so much. And you should extrapolate here from the lesser to the greater. That God is acutely aware of Hagar's plight. He knows exactly what's going on and he comes to meet her. Certainly, certainly if he would meet her, he would meet him. Certainly, he would keep his word to Abram. And in fact, that is what he does as the next chapter begins. In this movement, you'll see really another, another option for how to respond to God because Abram and Sarah now laugh at the incredulity 
of God's promise. Chapter 17 begins with these words. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. Now, if you're doing the math, if you've tracked from the start when he left Haran at 75 years old, we're now 25 years in the waiting. That's 300 months, 300 cycles, 300 hopeful moments, 300 disappointments. And in that rightful despair, God visits Abram again. And he reiterates again his promise in a peculiar way in verse 4. He says, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So he changes his name from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And it simply appears to add insult to injury at the delay but then he goes f further. He says, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Did you catch the tense of that verb? I have made you. The childless one. A father of nations. Already. The tense here in the Hebrew is the perfect tense which communicates a completed action in the future. And we don't even have a, we don't have a category for that. It means it's as good as done. It's already happened. We can talk about it now, though it's happening in the future, as though it has already happened in the past. It is so sure. And just a few verses later in verse 15, God changes Sarai's name to Sarah, bringing her into the promise in her own right. She is a co-heir of all that God has promised to Abram. Now, how do you respond to that? How do you deal with this name change and this, this reiteration of the promise over and over again, decades between each appointment? Now, I'm sure you've got friends who say to you over and over and over and over, we should have dinner sometime. We should hang out sometime. Right? And then six months go by, and then they come back around, and they say, oh, we should hang out sometime. We should have dinner sometime. <laughs> and then six more months, and it happens again into eternity, and you get the point that you are never going to hang out with those friends. That seems to be what God is doing here. And Abraham and Sarah now, they respond really appropriately to how that feels. They laugh. Now, Sarah's laughter is more famous, but Abraham is the first to laugh. As soon as God makes his promise again, it says in verse 17 of chapter 17, Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And essentially, he's pleading with God, couldn't Ishmael, who is Hagar's son, couldn't Ishmael be the fulfillment? Couldn't he count? There's no way that a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman could have a son. Well, once again, you might think that God would be right to just forget these guys and change course after being laughed out. You might think that he'd be distant at this point now. But he comes once again. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. This time he comes in bodily form and visits Abraham and Sarah at their home. And he promises again, now in verse 10 of chapter 18, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. 
And Sarah, overhearing this, laughs. It is figuratively and literally inconceivable. And the wonderful part of the story is that God calls her on it. In verses 13, he says, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. About this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it. She says, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he says, no, but you did laugh. I just love the intensity. I hate it if it was directed to me, but I love reading about it. And you may indeed laugh at the promises of God. You, may, you might have absolutely no scientific or biological or chemical reason to believe that his word could ever possibly come true. And it is indeed laughable. And that is the story so far of Abram, now Abraham, and Sarah that you need to hear this morning as we begin our Advent series. And my question is, what does this have to do with Advent? What does this have to do with us? And I want to suggest to you it has everything to do with Advent just as it has everything to do with you, because when God makes a promise, you would do well to believe Him and wait patiently. In all of the tension of the story, the frustration of the story, the angst, God is still patient and present. And here's what happens. God's promises are fulfilled. And it is because God kept His promises that we even have a season of Advent. In Genesis chapter 21, it says, The Lord visited Sarah again. He's present still. As he said, And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And in this now, Abraham has received the land. He lives in Canaan. He's received now the son, this, this father of the offspring. But what about the blessing of the nations, that third part of God's promise? In this fulfillment of God's promise is like unwrapping a box within a box within a box at the Christmas tree. And you start to grow frustrated and then you realize all along it has been this most wonderful, beautiful, excellent gift. Because there is more. In Matthew chapter 1, the first words of the New Testament announce an even fuller fulfillment than Abraham and Sarah could ever have imagined. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. The line continues to verse 16, and Jacob the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. We celebrate Christmas because God kept his promise to Abraham. But more than celebrating Christmas, we celebrate the fact that we too now can have faith that is counted to us as righteousness. In Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is clear. 
He says, the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Faith, though it fought for its own way, though it laughed, worked to count for righteousness for Abraham. And the same faith will work to count as righteousness for us. The object of our faith is the same. It says in Romans 4 there that this faith is in the one who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. And the means of our justification, of our being proved righteous is the same as it was for Abraham. We believe God. We believe Him. Now, you might be getting the sense now that there are many then who are a part of Abram's family. There are many who are blessed. But what about the final word in Revelation chapter 7? We see a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This story has everything to do with Advent because it is only through God's patient presence with Abraham and Sarah that we even have the advent of Jesus and the hope that we too might be at peace with God by faith. And you would do well then to have faith in God and His promises today because it will work, it will prove to work for you as it did for Abraham. But this story also meets us in Advent when we anticipate the arrival of Jesus, and we are hoping, like Abraham, against all hope, that he will show up in a real way in our lives. We began reading Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, how long will you hide your face forever? What promises does God intend to keep toward us? And what do we do with the waiting? We probably need a helpful guardrail here on understanding the promises that God has made to us just so that we don't uh, sense that he's promised really anything about the upcoming election or uh, what gifts are under the tree or your financial situation or your family composition. The nature of the promises that are made to us are different than the nature of the promise made to Abraham and Sarah. In that, they are clearly and finally expressed in Scripture. And I want to name a few, okay? I just want you to hear them. Though they are abundant, this is the Costco sample size. You'll want the whole thing, okay? He promises to save all who come to him in faith, Romans 1.16. He promises that all will work out for good for his children, 
Romans 8.28. He promises comfort in our trials, 2 Corinthians 1.3. He promises new life in Christ, yes, abundant life for all who follow him, 2 Corinthians 5.17 and John 10.10. He promises to finish the work he began in us, Philippians 1.6. He promises peace when we pray, Philippians 4.6 and 7. He promises to supply our every need, Philippians 4.19. He promises rest, Matthew 11. He promises to come again, John 14. And when he he comes again to judge all evil, wiping away every tear and setting all things to right. Revelation 21. Faith is going to believe God about these things. You're going to trust Him that even though they seem impossible, even though it seems that everything is getting worse instead of better, that His Word is good. That he is patient and he is present. And you might think that everything after you believe God would get easier. It'd be better. And the story of Abraham and Sarah shows that after they receive the promise, after they believe the promise, nothing changes. But hope. Simply believing that God will keep his promises to you one day will change your life. Even as you wait in a world where it seems like nothing has changed. I want, let me describe for you how the, the promises work in the waiting. Okay, this, is, this summer, our car broke down. It was a bad breakdown. Driving east in the gorge on our family vacation. It was 114 degrees on Sunday afternoon. You remember the day. And the nearest parts store was uh, Napa Auto in Stevenson. And my smartphone made me a promise. It promised me two things. That Napa would be open till 5. And that my car would pull into the parking lot before 5. Let me tell you what that did for me. Okay. As much doubt and anxiety as I was having in my vehicle up to that moment, now there was hope. I think we can make it. I think we can get there. It's all going to work out. They're going to have the part. We'll be on our way. 20 minutes. Well, here's the catch. We roll into Stevenson Napa, and they're closed. They closed early. They got cooked out. And a broken promise utterly takes the wind out of your sails. Now we've turned the car off, and it was an alternator, so we're not turning the car back on. We're stuck in Stevenson. There's nothing else around. So the point uh, being, verify the object of your faith. That is wise. But the story continues, okay? I called around, located the parts in Hood River, purchased them on the phone, and then started calling around to find somebody in Hood River who could bring the parts. And through our, our family of churches, found another pastor who I'd never met in Hood River who was willing to pick up the parts and drive them to me. And when he texted me and said, I'm 20 minutes out with the parts and tools. I'll be there in 20 minutes. A promise, right? I'll be there in 20 minutes. The next 20 minutes of waiting, I'll tell you what it felt like. Like a blink of an eye compared to what 20 minutes before his text message felt like. Up to that moment, every minute felt like an hour. And from that moment on, every minute felt like a second. 
all of a sudden there was hope. The goodness of that promise, I'm coming with the parts and the tools, was worth the wait. And he came through on his promise and we were quickly on our way. And the, that's the point of Advent. For Abraham and Sarah, the character of God, his presence and patience, and the goodness of his promise made it worth the waiting. For you and I, the promise that Jesus will come again to restore every particular thing that is broken in our lives. Not every gen general thing that's broken, but when you think of what is broken in you, that is the thing he will fix. It will be worth the wait. Just as those before Christ hoped against hope that he would come, so now we join in hoping against hope that he has promised to come again and he will do so. Your God is patient, working with utter certainty all that he has promised to you. And your God is present in the midst of the waiting. So it will be worth it to hold on.